0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate.
1: Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall, this is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life. As I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't and some you should. Always playing the finest in indie pop, indeed. Anyway, this week's special guest is going to be Tim Sterling from the Power Pop combo the janitors who i spoke to roughly um, at the beginning of the year i have a backlog anyway so um expect quality chat and also some clap along tunes including this little classic this is good to be king and then more chat Indeed, what not to like? I know, very excitable stuff there. That's The Janitors with their classic single, Good To Be King, um, which I went out and bought straight away after Mr Peel played it. Anyway, just going down memory lane. This is David Eastwood. this is The C86 Show, and this week's special guest is going to be uh, the turn of uh, one-time member, drummer of The Janitors, the one and the only, Tim Sterling. So I'll bring you that interview, which I'll probably cut up, um, I don't know, probably in three little segments for your excitement, um, alongside the usual award-worthy playlist. Um, some of the music isn't going to sound absolutely fantastically clear because um, it was a, tr- a tricky one to um, get hold of. But anyway, I did my best, so um, don't don't knock it. And also while, while you're there and I'm here and I'm thinking about it, if you want to contact me, you can This is the admin bit, by the way. Um, You can do it on Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86 show. And um, I love everything that um, you give me, as long as it's positive. And also all the shows have been podcast the last two and a half years worth from the world of indie pop. And there's a lot. So um, you can find those again, um, C86 show. And uh, that's going to be on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, Mixcloud. There you have it. Anyway, more music, then some chat. This is going to be the janitors again. I hope you like the janitors. This is going to be their first single, and this is Chicken Stew, which came out on Intake Records. Remember that, I will ask you at the end of the show, just to make sure you're paying attention. Wow, that's all I can say. It's, um, it's good to hear that again. Anyway, that is uh, The Janitors and the first single they ever released in 1985 on the Intape label, and that was titled Chicken Stew. Hello, this is David Eastall, this is the C86 Show, and this is going to be the first part of my interview with Tim Sterling, where we've been talking about life, love, poetry, and some of the complexities of uh, being in a band and all that malarkey. And um, how did I get into the first we part? Know, yes, it was kind of tricky, but uh, uh, we got there in the end. I watched um, was about, about you know, the end programmes about the bigger words, bands, which, which people do. obviously the, and the arguments get about, um, longer yes, and much much more heated and nasty when actual the piles of money to argue about. So I'm just going to leave it at that and let Tim tell the story, because he was there. He lived it. Tim, tell us the story.
2: The piles of money that may have been argued and fought over never reached us, and that's the point. And that's the point that really I don't really need to go into with you and I w- may go into it at some point because there's now I'm looking at this again um, and all this information and what happened. There are certain episodes like uh, the tour of Poland that we did in 1987 whilst it was under martial law and our van broke down on day one. So we did the whole tour on Polish public transport, which was very interesting and um I'm um, looking back on it uh, I would say exciting in inverted commas but um it was it was just weird uh, the whole country was under lockdown so you had the the rising up of solidarity and the, and the end of the russian occupation of poland eventually um but a lot of people had been killed on the streets, I mean, gunned down by the army, which was news that didn't get here for some reason, um, usually because news like that isn't allowed to get back to um, you know places where it may cause other people to think, ah, we don't like our system, let's do what they're doing about it.
3: Yes. Um,
2: so it wasn't really reported. Um, so what we found ourselves in the end of was the kind of, um, you know, the communist grip of a, of a, country behind the iron curtain we were touring and we were playing gigs at about four o'clock in the afternoon because there was a six o'clock curfew everywhere um i think we got arrested by various forms of police about 12 times in the 10 days that we were in the country um which was bizarre because everyone knew who we were in terms of the authorities and where we were and what we were doing but i think they were just kind of letting us know who was uh, the boss, you know, if you know what I mean, regularly. Um, but I've got to say it was, it was just fantastic. I mean, the all the gigs were sold out. I don't know how people got tickets, how they bought them, perhaps they were freely available. I don't know. Um, but they were rammed. So we we were touring on Polish Trains basically, which were completely sardined because nobody had enough petrol to drive their cars anywhere. Petrol was rationed. So we'd be standing up on a train with all our amps, not the drums. Uh, I borrowed drum kits, which is another story in itself. But anyway, we managed to do that, put the gigs on. And people went absolutely nuts. And then after the gigs, we were signing autographs, signing records, and people were giving us their meat ration cards because they wanted to give us something, um, which we found out the next day would get you basically a lump of lard and a a bit bit of Polish sausage with loads of tissue paper in it, literally. (laughs) Um, You know, and it just, uh, the way we got through that 10 days was, well, being the, the unit that we had become and we always were and that's a that's the main main point of the story, David, is that you know, I sent you that Hunter S. Thompson quote, which is extremely poignant for anyone who is A musician or a creative you know, I'll read it again so the music business is a cruel and shallow money trench a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs there's also a negative side, I mean that's (laughs) that was my experience of everyone else who wasn't in the band and I think everyone else in the band would um, agree with that comment probably except for Dentover, our lovely and amazing first singer, because singers usually kind of in, engage and interface with the other people who, you know, make stuff happen. Yes. Um, and you have to do that. And then what I kind of realized not about halfway through, because I was at art college um, with Pete, the second bass player, Simon, the first bass player, who's on the cover of Chicken Stew. He he never played anything. They, he was mates of Dentover and, and Hoppy. And Sally, who who was his girlfriend, who was a very old friend of uh, Dentover, and that's how he ended up on the single cover. But he didn't play a single note on the single. It was all Hoppy or, uh, musically. Um, so, <sighs> you see, it just becomes really weird. And the way that people got connected with each other was, was bizarre. Yes. Um but the, the thing that the point i'm trying to make i suppose the first main point is that we were something happened um when i joined the band the first peel session is before i joined the band and the first single chicken stew and craig hoppy had uh got hold of a dramatics roll and dramatics drum machine which is like the size of two cigarette packets and yes. it's very basic But actually, it was just genius for what they were doing, for that sound, the early sound. Um, When I joined, I'd have to look at my notes, but I think that I joined in um, something like September 85,
3: I think. So Chicken
2: Stew came out in July 85 um on In Tape uh, at a small Manchester label and it was uh, single of the week i think i think in sounds and melody maker i know it was definitely in sounds um, not sure about melody maker and then because of that uh John Peel um asked for the first session uh which i'm not in and that was uh broadcast i think on the 7th of July 1985 or it was recorded then yes um and on the back of those two things those two events uh the band before I joined tried to start playing live gigs and they did two gigs in London and i think they realized very quickly that they just couldn't it, it the musical form would not come across live with a drum machine so they thought we need a, we need a proper drummer yes. uh, we need a, a sweaty lump at the back of the stage building a shed
3: Good.
1: And so, look, so you sort of formed in sort of that, you know, like 84, 85 was when the sort of the band started to come together. And obviously, yeah. you know, we'd had the sort of the punk period, the post-punk, and then kind of indie, which I put down at eighty-three to, to basically eighty-seven, which was the years of the Smiths, which is kind of just a simplistic way of looking at that period, I suppose. So you came along at yeah. that kind of that kind of mid-eighties period when things were... when John Peel and John Peel Show and the NME on the Wednesday were absolutely essential, and anything yeah. that you know, anything that was happening was kind of on that on that kind of uh, media outlet, really, and obviously. You, you must have got your sound together quite well and quite soon because obviously you attracted a lot of attention. And also, when was the time, just roughly, when I saw you playing in Norwich? Because that was kind of obviously another, a, a little bit of a live day. that But that must have been the mid-80s time.
2: Yeah, so Norwich, was that in a sort of converted church? Or it was, I'm the thinking?
1: art centre, the Norwich oh art centre. Oh
2: God, Center. right, so I do remember that. And were we headlining? Yes, Okay, so I would imagine that was eighty six. Then, um, yeah, sort of first half of eighty six, unless
1: um, actually. So I was just good. Good because I bought the single. It might have good been eighty five. Be yeah, I I bought the single. Good to be king, and obviously it was a bit of a fanboy and thought, let's yeah. go and see that band in Norwich. And you must have been headlining because I can't remember anybody else on that particular night. So yeah, um, okay. And I remember. So, so
2: let's say that you that might have been. I think early 86 then, um, what happened in 85 that, so the, uh, chicken stew came out and then the first appeal session was broadcast. And then, uh, we were basically allocated an agent by the label. Uh, the agent was allied, which was based down here, I believe. Um, and they just whacked together a 20, uh, it was a 20 or 21 date tour for us. And, um, so that 's when it got really surreal, so I the way that i the way that I joined the band, um, I was having a sandwich in the art school canteen, and Pete came up to me, Pete crow we had i don't even believe we'd spoken, but uh, I had been playing in a band the previous year called the Sullivan's, which was a bunch of guys from the other campus in Sunderland, and it was all right we'd done a couple of gigs in Newcastle and then we we funnily enough, supported the Boomtown Rats at Sunderland Poly. Um, and it was the first date of their tour. I can't remember which album it was, but it was them sort of trying to come back. And I just remember a very long, painful sound check with them, uh, with Bob Geldof kind of standing in the middle of the auditorium, stopping them, going, No! that's fucking shite we've been through this a lot of times it's still shite (laughs) and he was really he was really upset that oh he was just being really perfectionist about it you know and then and then he came over to us we were waiting to sound check and he was so apologetic and really nice and then we did a gig um and i think that's how pete had found out that i played drums so he, he approached me and he said look i'm playing with these guys in newcastle so Hoppy and Dent were living in Newcastle, and we were in Sunderland, so 10 miles away, and um, he said to me, do you wanna come and meet these guys? And I said, yeah, I mean, what's it like? And he said, well, do you like Captain Beefheart? And I said, yeah, and then um, I said, okay, let's go. So I went with Sally, jumped in her car a couple of days after that, and I'll never forget this. Uh, we we got to the, the road that they were living on. I can't remember what it was called. And we were driving down the road. She had a 2CV and I saw this guy. <laughs> That's such know, a cliche. Didn't everyone, didn't everyone, I know. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. <laughs> this is going to just be wall-to-wall cliches now. But, you know, you and I, David, we're of a certain age and we can appreciate them for what they really are, which is real gem moments, otherwise known as cliches. Yes. Um, so we were driving down the road and this guy was uh coming towards us up the up the pavement and he looked he just looked like Elvis Presley and that was Dentover. He was wearing, you know, denim jacket, denim jeans and he had that incredible black hair quiff and uh, you know, he just looked like Elvis and I and Sally went, Oh, that's Dent and I thought, right, okay, that guy looks bloody cool. This is okay. Um so we got to the house and I went in, sat in the kitchen with them um, and <laughs> my audition was simply, he uh, said, so do you like Beefheart and the Stooges and Birthday Party? And I said, uh, yes. And he said, right, okay, so um, we're gonna start rehearsing tomorrow. And we've got five days to get the set together and then we're doing a tour. And I said, okay then. And I listened to the first Peel session and yeah i just realized very quickly that i would just learn exactly those drum patterns kind of parrot fashion and i i've never done this uh i've never done this before or since but because the Roland dramatics is such a basic machine my entire drum kit for that tour was bass drum snare drum and hi-hat cymbals and that was it and it was kind of terrifying i mean i'm I'm a very good drummer, actually. I was going to say I was a pretty good drummer at that point, but I had to sort of relearn everything. And this is one of the biggest gifts that I got from being in that band was, you know, nobody in that band was a um, traditional taught musician. I mean, I played viola at school up to grade five, but that was it. That was the extent of the musical kind of, uh, you know, standard training. But I'm the biggest believer in in kind of putting all of that on one side. Basically, you know, anything that you get drawn to do and want to do and want to excel in, you have to teach yourself. You just have to teach yourself. You know, you can be taught to play an instrument, but at some point you're going to have to walk up to to the precipice or the cliff and you're just going to have to jump off and go, right, sod it. Uh, Sod all of that, I'm just going to do what I want to do now. Obviously, you need some technique, and then you also need that that thing that I think we had, which was, well, talent, you know, individually, and then uh, being able to collectively just give yourself absolutely and 100% to the music without even knowing what the hell you're giving yourself to. And I know that doesn't really make sense to people who haven't experienced what I'm talking about. But I think that's the creative process. You just have to keep turning up and giving yourself to it. And you have to be really disciplined and you have to give loads of time, loads of time, loads of energy. And really you have to put everything in your life on one side. And this is why what's going on in music now, you know, and we started talking at the beginning about... um, well, the way that um, the world has changed in our lifetime. So, you know, you, you if I, I don't know, when I, when I go and see somebody, a friend, and there's somebody stood next to them, and because of proximity of our telephones, I get home and that person is suggested to me as a friend on Facebook. That's pretty weird, right?
3: Mm, yes. So
2: all of that stuff didn't happen at, at this time in the 80s. And at this time in the 80s, people had to constructively build relationships with each other and put energy into it and and by that i mean turn up and be there and be the friend or the partner or the drummer or the guitarist and and physically keep turning up and bringing yourself and your energy and putting it into something that may not actually go anywhere but i think that's really what's required and that's what we all had and that's what we all understood without having ever said anything like what i've just said to you
1: and that is the first part of my interview with tim sterling from the janitors still more um more quality chat from where that came from i can tell you it gets more exciting anyway i think we should have some more music and then back to the um, interview but uh, this is going to be taken from a john pill session from 1980 He says. I think it was produced by the one and the only Dale Griffith, and this is going to be a track titled Family Fantastic. (laughs) That's the Janitors with a track titled Family Fantastic that was taken from a John Pills session that was um, either recorded on the 6th of January 1987, or that's when it got broadcast. Anyway, God, it's been quite complicated getting the um, work of the Janitors because there isn't a huge amount out there to access that easily, but um, hopefully I got it right, otherwise you can, yes email in and or not email but tweet or i don't know what you do facebook and say you got it wrong anyway who cares now this is going to be the second part of my interview with tim where i've been talking for quite a long time um so i edited this bit out about most bands having that five year narrative and also the importance of that period of being unemployed or the unemployment benefit job seekers allowance enterprise allowance and all those kind of groovy schemes schemes that uh, the one and only margaret thatcher introduced to uh, reduce the unemployment figures and um, yes the importance of getting on the John Peel session as well or John Peel play then a session and being able to tour around the country and um, after I made all that point Tim replied and this was it Tim I hope you hadn't fallen asleep when I was rabbiting on here you go it
2: was I mean just going back to the the first bit and the first yeah we were it was just I mean my life has been extremely lucky I've got to be straightforward about that with you, David, um, and where I'm at in my life now, this is why it's been difficult for me to remember. And I've had to look and read and cause my life's completely changed. I'm not, I don't do music now. I'm. I think I'm just about to start, um, doing my art and I would say again, but I haven't done any art since I graduated in 1986, not really. Right. And it's a thing that I'm really, really good at, you know, and I've, I've decided finally that I'm going to start doing portraits. And again, um, not because I have some dream that it will um, furnish my life with huge amounts of financial reward. It's not about that. It's about the process and it's about me uh, engaging with um you know, a creative activity which makes me feel better about being alive. Yes. And that's what music did for me for a long time. At a time in my life when it was difficult to express myself in any other way, because we were so young. I mean, I I have a, a huge amount of respect for people who know what they want to do at the age of 22, because I didn't. You know, I'm 55 now, and I'm kind of just on the brink of understanding um what i would like to do and and then it's not so important that it has to be the be-all and end-all i'm just going to have a go at it and i'm going to put myself into it 100 percent like i did with the janitors so going back to 1985 we were had been extremely lucky i mean blessed if you like craig and hoppy When they recorded Chicken Stew, they recorded Chicken Stew, I don't know if you know this, but they were on their way up to um, Newcastle, literally in a van with their stuff, you know, with guitar amps, guitars, some clothes, to meet uh, Simon, the first um, non-bass player. And on the way up, they stopped for one day in Manchester and recorded Chicken Stew. And then the next day, they got in the van and continued on up to Newcastle. And that was the single that got Single of the Week, which gave birth to the Peel session, which uh, gave birth to the first tour. So, and then I stepped into the frame, five days rehearsing in a tiny warehouse in Newcastle. And I'm sitting to you, talking, sitting now, talking to you with bilateral tinnitus, right? And I think that probably started in those five days rehearsals in that tiny warehouse. I've never been in so much volume in my life before that. And, um, yeah, I've got hearing aids now. I mean, I don't wear them all the time, but uh, it's just a consequence of being a drummer. Drummers always whinge, David. Have you noticed that? They just <laughs> whinge.
1: <laughs> well, yes, yes. He- <laughs> hearing. No, no, I was just thinking about hearing because I do, you know, I'm sort of that similar age where suddenly little things, is a bit like an old car, isn't it? Things that don't work as fun, you know as well as they, they should do. They start
2: to fail, yeah, and, and sometimes rumble have, on a bit. And you,
1: and you have to sort of slap or hit it to get it to work <laughs> or, or sort of get the indicator. Is on, something like you can't that.
2: say that. This is twenty nineteen. You can't slap or hit anything, dear boy.
1: No, this is true. But then <laughs> so your first album then was on the in tape label, wasn't it? Which was it run was. by Mark Riley's famous Mark
2: album. Riley from The Fall and the Creepers and a very um, yeah, a very interesting character, very flamboyant, uh, you know, quite a big dude in Manchester at the time. Um, I remember going to his house in Didsbury, I think it was, and uh, he had three boa constrictors. That always struck me as being a a kind of a must-have for somebody at his position in uh, indie world kind of circles, Mm -hmm. you know.
3: (laughs) Um,
2: So it was... um, yeah, it was Mark and actually the real driving force behind the label or the behind the scenes stuff was a guy called Jim Cambatter, who basically, you know, Mark, I don't know what happened with um, the setup of the label but I think that because of Mark's notoriety um, and I think that helped but I think it was more uh, Jim's relationship with the business so going back to Hunter S. Thompson's Quote. You know that 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 quote from him applies to the people who run the business, not the musicians. That's the point about that quote. I think that's why that was quite poignant for me to remember that quote again. Yes. I've, I haven't. Everyone that I've met who performs and plays is not like that. And then there are a few people who have been able to take control of the business side of of what they're doing and and do that successfully but i don't i don't believe that it's possible to do that so this is key in terms of why the janitors didn't continue and prevail we never had management and i did it for a while myself so that's why i i sent you the link to the tree fair which was near the end of what we were doing so i i basically got us onto that bill and i had tried i kept on phoning the promoter incessantly for about two months, I think, and he'd just say no, and he'd say, well, what have you released? You haven't put anything out that's any good. You haven't had any good reviews for ages, blah-de-blah-de-blah. And in the end, I just, I had this stroke of genius, and I phoned him up. and I said, right, how about this then? Uh, we'll play, and then the Gay Bikers on Acid will do a set, and then both bands will do a sort of mega-band set. How does that sound? And he said, hang on a minute, I'll just go and check. And he came back and he said, well, how much are we paying for that then? So I got it. And I might hasten to add that that's before I'd even spoken to the gay bikers as to whether they could do it or whether they wanted to. <laughs> so thankfully, they were available and and we did it. And, um Yeah, so that was one of the sort of toes dipped into management things that I did and the other the other thing was when Dentover left um if you look at the it's on the wikipedia thing um so he'd gone because well he basically became an adult before we did and he thought okay I don't want to do this anymore I want to get married and do grown up things um so he went, and I uh, had a friend, um, Paul Touche, who's, who's from Tucson, Arizona, an absolutely insane bloke, and I said to him, do you want to sing in the band? And he said, yeah, okay, that sounds kind of cool. And um, he, sp- he speaks really fluent Spanish, so in order to generate some sort of interest in that, I phoned up the enemy and I said, look, Janice has got a new singer. And they said, yeah, so what? And I said, well, it's this guy, Bobo Nando. He's a mariachi singer from Mexico. And they're like, okay, that's pretty weird. Uh, can we have an interview? So we arranged an interview, and, and Paul went with his friend, Jean, who pretended to translate for Paul. <laughs> because, I mean, Paul's, Paul's American, basically, but that worked well, and we got a kind of a four-paragraph thing in the NME. Um, obviously, it didn't go anywhere, but... And then I kind of realized that um, management and creating interest is about doing that, really. Lying and doing it well and creating, you know. I mean, this happens all the time now because we're living in the age of fake news. And yes. going back to the beginning of the conversation, what what is real, what isn't real? You know, wh- why is Trump there anyway? Well, because he's like the best PR man on earth and he doesn't give a shit about anything other than himself. Um, and, again, that seems to be a, a sort of uh, tack that a lot of people have followed in music, i.e., you know, I'm going to do this and I don't give a shit about anyone else. and I'm just going to do it. So get out of the way. And um, we were not that. The judges were not that
1: so when you were bringing because obviously you know thunderhead was your mini album which was on Intape, and then you brought yeah. you know Deathhead together in kind of two years later towards the end of the decade on abstract did that yeah. was that what was that process like because i would imagine the first you know your thunderhead was, was it came together quite nicely and that was the kind of result of your early years and then obviously yeah. you have that kind of then the next the next bit which you know obviously catches a lot of people out because you know you need to kind of sit down and really think this through but Obviously no one does, so you kind of stumble into it and it's like, yes, it's
3: tricky, isn't it?
2: It was tricky and you're right, Thunderhead was was great and it was, you know, I believe that like the Janitors and other bands that I love, if you're going to be in a band and you're going to play live, then just do that in the studio. That's what you must be able to do Um, as opposed to, you know, sampling everything and... Yeah, I mean, just in a side note, when the Gay Bikers the gay bikers on Acid, they, their first two singles went out on in and they sold uh, shed loads. I mean, I don't know, first single um, was, what was the first single? Everything's Groovy Baby, November 1986. Sold about, I don't know, 200,000 copies, I think, which is huge. Yes. And then... Their second single, "Nosedive Karma," which was May '87, similar, and then they picked up a manager, Tracy Lamont, who just uh, come off the back of helping the psychedelic furs, and she got them signed to Virgin, um, which was their well, "Kiss of Death," really. So, what happened to them? Um, I mean, they were amazing live, and they had a great image, and they were able to play a sort of game with the music press. Um, You know, Mary's a very clever guy in that way, the singer. And they, they, yeah, it really worked, and it all came together for them. Virgin gave them an obscene amount of money in advance, and I mean, you know, a a few million quid, to make their first album and for the publishing. But what happened was, and this is similar to what happened to the janitors, this was at the beginning of proper sort of music uh, programming. But programming, I don't know, what, what were people using then? Cubase, I suppose? I yes. don't know, because I've never really been into programming. So in the Gay Bikers uh, instance, they were put into a brand-new studio just off the old Kent Road called Orinoco, because we all went down there and just hung out for days on end. And Kev, the drummer, he set up his drums in the enormous live room, and he spent about a week um, recording each drum into a computer... And then all of the drum tracks were programmed for him. So he didn't play anything on that album. You know, a bit like, uh, I suppose, the best example of an album like that is Eliminator, ZZ Top, which is all programmed on a Lin drum. But that is just superb, that album. And you know that they are able to play that stuff brilliantly live, or they were able to. And that album was an absolute hit. In For the bikers and for us, so this happened to us as well, to a lesser extent, you know that kind of sanitizing and sampling and smoothing out and taking off all the hard, rough edges was precisely the wrong thing to do you know it so it just killed um whatever the thing we had that I was trying to put into words earlier about energy and bringing yourself absolutely and utterly 100% to the, to the table, and then just doing it, you can't somehow, I don't think that can be squeezed through zeros and ones and Cubase. I just don't believe it can.
1: And um, I'm not going to argue with that last point because I had no idea. I'm not a technical person. But anyway, that's the second part of my interview with Tim Sterling from The Janitors talking about the creative process and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, still more of that interview to come. Just stay with it. It does get even more exciting and uh, intriguing. Anyway, this is going to be another track taken from the John Peel session from the, that golden, day, uh, golden year, 1987 which I still think is probably one of the best years of music ever, if you just look at the album releases on that year alone you just wonder just how lucky we were, anyway um, indeed, anyway it doesn't matter does it, this is going to be the track, uh, the fourth track from the John Peel session, it's a Chrome <laughs> more chart band sounds from the janitors with a track titled it's a crying ball from a john Peel session 1987 if you're making notes anyway this is the third part of my interview with tim where i've been talking about i suppose the business side of uh, creativity and releasing records and um, having interviewed quite a lot of bands often people don't realize that um, what they're signing over is everything basically the soul their life and all their music, obviously. And um, yes, and then they get a bit caught, uh, caught up and realise they suddenly owe the record label lots of money and thus not their own uh, records anymore. And this was Tim's reply to that very thoughtful comment. I know, I'm, I was on fire.
2: Well, this is it. I mean, the thing, just to finish off the Gay Biker story, I mean, they so they made their album and it came out. It's called Drill Your Own Hole because i seem to recollect that the first 500 copies had no hole in the middle of the vinyl so you had to drill your own hole basically which is quite funny and juvenile in equal measure um (laughs) but we thought it was pretty funky at the time so the album came out and various things happened so Um, They made a film to go with the album, Drill Your Own Hole, which is, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's worth watching. Um, We're in it, the janitors and the bomb party and a few other people from Leicester, people who were just hanging around. We're extras in the film. And it's a proper film. I mean, it cost them, I think it cost them something like 700,000 quid to make the film. (laughs) So, you know, proper locations. And it's funny. I mean, it's sort of blues brothers funny you know it's a kind of pastiche on them and them getting signed and and then you know playing and and just weird scenes and stuff uh, I've got a cameo role in it as Vincent van Gogh and uh, they've they've taken some hallucinogenic hallucin, hallucin hallucinogenic I can't even say it anymore that's interesting <laughs> considering the amount that passed through earlier years ago anyway Um, they've taken something and I appear as this kind of acid trip Um, so that was interesting and a whole lot of fun to be around Um, the album came out and I think it peaked at 72 or something like that in the chart and then they were dropped almost immediately by the label and Virgin said right that's it you can't perform any of this stuff and you can't even use your name so they changed their name to lesbian dopeheads on mopeds <laughs> and and uh, put their own studio together in Waterloo and went on and made another eight albums I think under lesbian dopeheads on mopeds um, and then Mary um, eventually became one of the singers in Apollo 440 which was really cool for him. Um, the others I'm not sure what they're doing now. Um, yes. Kev, Kev the drummer he formed a band with Jeff from the Janitors after we stop doing stuff but yeah going back to the second album problem it is you're right it's a it can be a massive well a lot of bands can die then when they've had an amazing first album and we had a pretty good first album but again with with no fifth member and by that i mean the manager who is not in uh huntress thompson's quote he's in the band or he or she the perfect manager is the fifth band member because they understand what you're doing they their only um kind of um their sole purpose is to look after what you're doing as musicians. So there are some really great managers out there. Well, like, I was team. just
1: thinking of that guy from um, Peter Grant. That's the man, isn't it? He was the Led Zeppelin heavy dude who was going. He loved his band, didn't yeah. he? And he and yeah. they were his brothers. And he was going to kill people if they got in his way or try to rip yeah. them off. But he was incredible. But he was that man. He was that. He person. was that
2: man. Yeah, you need that. You have to have. And that whoever that man is, it wasn't me. You know, I've given you those couple of examples of me kind of trying to do that and be in the band and you just can't. It's too much, I think. And I think if you look back through the history of well, all art, you know, um, Picasso for want of a better um, kind of uh, example, there's no way that he managed anything other than being, you know, absolutely amazing artist. And then he attracted people to do that other stuff for him. And yes, they get paid, but you know, or Lucian Freud, whose story is well, amazing. I don't know if you know anything about Lucian Freud, but my favorite Lucian Freud story is when he was picked up by a New York gallery, um, you know, to sell his paintings. And that's like millions of quid, basically, um, for them to handle and sell the work uh the the new york guy phones the london guy and he says uh okay fine you know we're we're happy to take mr freud now uh can we take some paintings soon and the english guy says yeah sure no problem but you would just need to settle mr freud's gambling debt first and the guy's like okay no problem how much is that three million pounds so you know lucian freud had an enormous gambling thing going on um which i think is uh well terrifying and amazing in equal measure again you know, yes it's just,
1: well i, I sort you... of when you were saying that story about the manager it did remind me of the smiths and johnny marr and him having to sort of deal with all this kind of stuff and and you know, found himself having to sort of booking vans and, and hiring yeah. stuff and thinking, actually I just want to make music and then have a bit of a break but you know it's sort of after yeah. that five the five year period and, and then it snapped for him. So when you lost your lead singer and you know, Andrew Denton, did that was that Dentover. Kind of, yeah. Dentover was that a a a kind of a bit of a moment in the band that you felt that's tricky or was it a,
2: um yes on the one hand and uh if you want to know where the band was at okay there's just a couple of things on youtube from the janitors so uh the peel sessions are up there which uh some uh, i would imagine um devoted fans have put up there over the years so thanks very much for doing that whoever you are it's appreciated only because i can listen to stuff that i don't have copies of anymore um but we've got a one promo that was made for the, uh, the second album for Abstract called "Halfway to a Happening," um, which was shot reasonably professionally. And in that video, so um, Dent the singer, he basically took sole control of the you know the script and the ideas and the whole um, sway of what was going to happen in the video. And if you watch that, then you'll understand how separate we had become from him if you like so it's quite funny because in in that video we all get sort of tortured in the way that he wanted to torture us (laughs) and he and he's just like walking through the video wearing a fantastic tuxedo looking like some weird magician and we we well i get hauled up a tree with angel real feather angels wings on my back so maybe that's not too bad if that's what he thought of me um hoppy the guitarist he comes out of a he's been buried alive and he comes out of a grave playing the guitar solo and jeff the bass player gets roasted on a fire so um (laughs) but we were so far away from him the three of us um at the time that we just kind of we didn't even know what was happening we just said yeah okay fine we're doing a video yeah yeah we'll turn up yeah that's fine where's it going to be oh in the garden of the squat in highgate yeah no problem fine so watch it afterwards and and you'll you'll see what's happening but yeah as i said earlier dento uh, is i mean he yeah he was always uh he was just weird when we were putting stuff together. I can remember rehearsing in a punk rehearsal place in Sunderland called The Bunker and the three of us, uh, initially Pete, but it was Jeff, when Jeff joined. So Pete left, um, well, he just had enough um, of our shenanigans i'll put it like that i mean i could say chemical shenanigans but i won't say that because this is for broadcast so i didn't say that but if you want to leave it in that's fine because you know what i mean and lots of people know what i mean um that was that's what happened that was the fracture i think was that the three of us going off on this weird journey and pete didn't want to be part of that and then denton dentover didn't really want to be part of it either but You know, again, going back to the I'm going to bring myself 100% to the table and create something, you know, I've got to be honest that a lot of the best music of all time is created by people who are under the influence of something other than by that, I mean, other than just the hand of God and their own creative talents. I mean, you know, under the influence of something a drug or a substance of choice, you know, and you mentioned Led Zeppelin. Well, famously, not all of Led Zeppelin, but most of Led Zeppelin had been through that particular problem. Um, So when Dentover left, I think we were kind of already over it. However, that's not strictly true. So that kind of connection, and that sort of, it's like a four-way marriage between four men. I mean, let's have it right, because when it when stuff's really happening, and you're doing touring and writing stuff and recording, nobody gets a look in. You know, family, girlfriends, nobody, friends. It's just you guys, and and you know that, and you you have you've signed the deal, without saying anything. I, I was, it's almost impossible to get this over, but I think you know, David, from talking to other people about how how crucial and how special and important it is. And then why do you do all of that? Because, and it's not really about recording. I find recording actually quite exciting and then really boring when you just sit through days of editing and mixing and, you know, um, it's about being on stage and in front of, doesn't matter, it can be 50 people or it can be a couple of thousand people. It's when everything works and you, you close your eyes and you just dissolve, everyone dissolves in that auditorium into each other. But there's four of you on stage and there's a thousand people out there and you are creating the dissolving moment and it's amazing. There's nothing like it. I think we had a few great, great gigs like that. I remember one gig at ULU, University of London Union, mm-hmm. We supported the Three Johns, who were, as you are probably aware, they were pretty banging at the time. I yes. guess that was 80, that'd be 86. And we'd had um, a great live review, I think, in the music papers uh, the previous week. So we were supporting, we went on stage. I mean, that venue holds about 1,000 people, and you could tell from being in the bar that it was sold out. So we started playing... And there was about five people in the auditorium and I thought, oh, sod this. And I kind of just looked down at my snare drum for the rest of the first song, looked up and it was completely rammed, full. Everyone was in there. And at that point, it's probably still the same, you know, support bands, people don't bother. They just stay in the bar. You know, they just can't, can't be bothered. But we absolutely filled, everyone was there and they loved it and they tore the place
1: down. And that is tim sterling talking about life with the janitors i think before we have any more of that interview we should play some more music to keep the party rolling this is going to be uh, the title track of their first album which is Thunderhead. and you get the gist anyway I have no idea i'm just babbling now take it away And that's the janitors with a track titled johnny thunderhead or just um thunderhead johnny i don't know i don't think that was actually from the album i think that was from the john Peel show that was recorded on the 17th of july 1985 right next part of the interview with tim and to be honest it's going to get very exciting so um, i had just been having a chat and a little interlude there I was sort of making some interesting comment Possibly, and uh, actually, it wasn't that interesting. I mentioned that John Langford had produced his album, the first album. I know I was so insightful, and this was Tim's response to that fascinating question—or oh, not even a question, was it? Just more of a sort of sentence dangling, really. Taken away, Tim.
2: He did very well as well. That was in where was that studio? Was in off, uh, Leeds Offbeat,
3: and... oh, right?
2: Yeah, we had five days in there, I think it was, five or six days to record and mix, and so that was um, really good going. However, I would add this, I mean, from what I've read, I mean, I could be wrong and somebody will probably correct me, but, you know, the Oasis uh, first album, the one recorded in Rockfield, I mean, that was like two weeks, I think, recorded and mixed, and it's going back to what I said about if you're going to be in a great live band, then the thing that we possibly got wrong at certain points was not being rehearsed enough before we went into a studio so the studio is almost of it's just a a bit of side salad you know you're just going to be playing your songs again in the most incredible way but in a studio that's going to be captured onto tape but i for my money it shouldn't really necessarily be any different to being on stage in a venue
1: Yes, well, I remember hearing hearing, uh, the members of Black Sabbath talking about, I think, recording their first album, which was a classic, but they'd been playing it live for years so they could almost put the whole thing down in a day and it's like, what's the big deal? You know, we've been doing this and we know everything to do in in that kind of, we don't need to do two takes because we've been, you know, but it's interesting because, you know, I'm obsessed about watching these rock documentaries, but even bands that I'm not that keen on, like Twisted Sister, they spent about five years playing... Before some because no one wanted to but sign them but they were playing in front of 3,000 people every time they played a gig around New York but every yeah. record company said I don't like them so we're not signing them and then eventually <laughs> they they had some weird connection with the UK and then eventually they got picked up and then became this huge band in the 80s so it is kind of weird and I remember Stuart Copeland from the police who was talking about his relationship with Sting or Stingo or oh, his
2: non-relationship his,
1: his, his kind of the way he could say Stingo <laughs> in such an unpleasant way but they had Ban therapy. He said, you know, what we needed was band oh, therapy. Really? And that helped to sort out a lot of the issues because, you know, they, they, they were so big. It's like, mm. we really don't want to be in the police because we really don't like each other, but we could be earning millions. So shall well, we, that's it. So shall, we, yeah, yeah. so shall we sort this out and have a bit of a chat? So they had to sort of get a ban a therapist, I think, to, to sort that stuff out for them, which it kind of worked. And I think they were able to yeah. mature maturely sort of continue make the money and then say goodbye but talking of Jim Morrison and the end how did it finish with the janitors then because eventually as the 80s rolled on and we were feeling tired you, you must have said did you sit down and call it a day or did you just not turn up
2: I think we it was a bit of both now here again um Because I was uh, over the other side of the herbaceous border at the time, if you don't mind me putting it like that. I quite like that. Sorry, I've stolen that from Will Self, but never mind. (laughs) Um, Firmly over the other side of the herbaceous border. Um, So, yeah, trying to remember the actual end process. We had moved. So um, from Sunderland, uh, I graduated in '86. And just to point this out, because I find this amazing, so in the last year of my degree, I think we did about 100 gigs and I got a two-one. and I don't really understand how that was all possible, but it happened. Um, So from there, we moved to Moss Side uh, in Manchester, and we lived in a squat in, in, uh, it was Gretney Walk. It was a massive crescent block of flats that's a whole other film script yes. that's seven months um because i i did um, an
1: interview with a member of big flame and i think they were all squatting in some area in manchester that's why they they could live there and be in big flame and then
3: decide. yeah
2: it was it was insane david i mean we got to manchester and somebody i think um i can't remember who had a friend living in manchester oh it's hoppy i think yeah and um They said, look, go to the housing office in Moss Side and see what they've got. So we went there, and they gave us four sets of keys for four different flats. Can you believe it? And they said, look, just choose the flat you want and bring the other sets of keys back. I mean, that's how empty Moss Side was at the time. And it was pretty grim, I've got to be honest. I
3: mean...
2: Yeah, it was, you know, heroin was just really starting to rear its head, I think, maybe, I don't know if if that was across the UK, but certainly in Manchester, um, and obviously that was unpleasant, and thankfully that was not something that we ever got into, thank God. Um, But, you know, so, for example, we came back from that one-month tour of Europe when we toured Poland when it was under martial law, and we came back, I think we got back to Manchester on... Christmas either Christmas eve or the day before christmas eve and our flat door was like open half an inch and we opened the door and everything was gone i mean everything i mean like there between us there was a lot of vinyl in there i don't know 2000 albums all of those were gone all even my paintings from my uh, college were had been rolled up in a cupboard they were gone yeah so that was that's you know, that's kind of inner-city heroin activity. It's what people have to do to keep their habits going, and it's just just the way it is. Um, So that was uh, a big change that was happening. You know, I think the whole, I don't know, one of the biggest things that's striking me about this conversation is what happened then to us, the janitors, that something was happening at that time, and then what the the music journalists people like james brown who was at the enemy then you probably remember yeah. he was editor of the enemy he constructed greebo which was the gay bikes on acid pop itself um crazy head from leicester we knew all these guys and that that sort of made the next uh batch of who to watch and what's happening and these are the bands not you know, the Janitors and the Bomb Party and the bands before. And maybe we were just uh, kind of operating in a period where there were a lot of bands who appeared to be quite sort of amateur in a way because they didn't have management and they were doing it themselves. What we what we did have was a label, and we thank God they were releasing stuff and we were known about. But that whole behind-the-scenes stuff that Huntress Thompson has uh mentioned so perfectly well but nobody was interested in that and maybe that had a bit to do with what was going on politically you know you the background was Thatcher the miners strike we played a few miners benefit gigs i remember doing those um i don't remember where they were but yes. that felt quite good that we were doing something and it was the poll useful. tax
1: coming as well
2: poll tax oh my god which we're still well paying right you've yeah. got a council tax bill haven't you yes whatever they roll out whatever the English God bless them try to protest about and and with we just seem to fail my wife's French and um, I don't care what anyone says about the French they have something to be eternally happy about which was their revolution you know Um, whether the English will be pushed to that point I doubt it no not now it could have happened then though this is the the other point which because you're we were of a
3: similar yes. age. Yes. We?
1: And we were in the whole anti poltax league, we were there, weren't we? Yeah. So yeah. That, that was it. it. Yeah. It was. So, but one thing that did sort of happen, which is kind of what came out of um, these interviews, has been that there was the kind of indie pop scene, and then obviously people liked movements and. Um, and then sort of that 87 period, and, and obviously that's when the Smiths were finishing, there was this sort of dance scene that started. And obviously for most people that was like, oh, brilliant, we've got dance, you know. So we've got the yeah. Stone Roses, Happy Mondays, Soup Dragons, lots of ecstasy. So, So in a way, all those other bands who'd been making you know, guitar, jingly, bass, pop were just kind of... An, and the Husker Do's and the Three Johns types. I mean, I suppose you got got Grunge as well that was coming around the corner quite quickly. Yeah. But, but then there was that scene, and there were a few bands because there were people like Lush, and there was also Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine that were coming along, who didn't sort of fit in any of those. But then you had those few years, and then you had Brit, Brit pop in about 93, 94, time, yeah. didn't you? So in a way, I can see a lot of those bands were just thinking because I'd sort of interview people like the mighty lemon drops and also the primitives and it was like well so why did you finish you know a question it's like well actually no one wanted to know us anymore we'd we'd sort of you know we couldn't get any publicity and no one wanted to talk to us and yeah. I was a bit boggled because it's like but you were huge once you know not you know you must have been huge a couple of years ago 18 months ago and then suddenly it's like yeah but then that was it we'd <laughs> we, were, we were sort of set on the sell-by date and, and it's like so we just gave it up and it's like oh i didn't know that i didn't know that you know existed quite so painfully for so many bands
2: remember david just one more time to hunter s thompson and good men die like dogs <laughs> that's what happens or you could say good bands die like dogs
3: Yes. Or good
2: songs die like dogs. Or maybe they don't die like dogs, but they just get forgotten and everything gets turned over so quickly. And, you know, my main gripe or problem or, or critique of that is that the only reason that all this stuff gets turned over so quickly is because of money and profit. And um, that's the way it is, I think, yes. you know. Well, as David
1: Bowie did, fashion its kind of a, well, that's not yeah. really happening anymore. So, did, I mean, the one thing which could be a bit tricky to talk about then is because the admin is something that catches people out. Do you own the music? I mean, who, who kind of has the kind of tapes huh. and who owns the copy? You know, who owns the actually publishing and can we put it out on an album? And, and why why the janitors' music not kind of readily available on a CD?
2: um are you very crackly your end i am a bit
1: attacked. are you
2: yeah i am yeah it's got kind of deteriorated as we've been talking which is a bit of a pain um let me i don't know exactly. let me move around a bit and see if it gets any better
1: it did yes no i don't think it's going to
2: let, oh i could go upstairs i mean um so sorry yeah so that's the that would be the rub of the whole conversation. And that's what I was messaging you about. So the Janitor's songs are owned by, as far as I know, um, a publishing company called Screaming Red Music, which is owned by two guys, one of whom is John Langford, interestingly. Um, So we signed away the uh, songs on the first album, Thunderhead, to that publishing company at the end of the week of recording it in uh, Leeds with John. And I, you know, I look back on that uh, afternoon and I just think, God, that was so well constructed by the pair of them. This guy, Rob, turned up at the studio. John introduced him. He said, oh yeah, this is Rob, he runs a publishing company, Uh, you need publishing you know, because this is going to be commercially released. And I'd I hasten to add that we knew nothing, you know, going back to the are you in it to be um, in business or are you in it to make music? Well, we were just making music and we were really young and excited about being in a, a studio and making an album. So he said, look, I'm going to take you across the road and you just need to fill out some forms, um, you know, list the song titles and who's written them and we we split everything equally uh, which was a good thing i believe we filled out the forms and he just looked at us and he said uh, he smiled and he said oh to make it legally binding we need to i need to have given you some money for the publishing so how about if i give you a penny <laughs> by this time i think we'd had about five pints that he bought for us so you could consider that part of the advance i suppose um <laughs> Yeah, really. And so we gave the publishing away on on Thunderhead for a penny. And I tried to get to the bottom of uh, how many copies in tape shifted. It was a lot. It was um, not as much as the Gay Bikers, but I think it was probably over 30,000 copies, something, maybe more, at £6, £6 a hit. So somebody was receiving quite a lot of money for the sale of that album, but unfortunately not us not a penny of it, you
3: know.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: That is so... so
2: that's the part that you might, I don't know if you want to include that or, you know, and over the years I've thought about that, David, and it's made me very angry, have got to be honest, because we were so skint at the time, you know, going back to the... How do you create the space to be able to dedicate your whole life to doing the music? Well, you, it's very, very hard. Yes. And, and you need help. And that kind of help, if we'd had a straight-up label, you know, because obviously John was appointed by Intape to do the production work, and he produced pretty much all of the Intape releases at that time. So I don't know what other deals and pots of money were being made by them, but they were being made, have no doubt about it. That um, if they'd been able to, you know, give some of that money back, then who knows what may have uh, happened in a good way, you know, to some of those bands. Maybe they would have prevailed or continued, or you know, or ideal for Intape. They might have been swallowed up by bigger labels who would have done a licensing deal with Intape, which would have been more money for Intape. So the conclusion, conclusion, sort of thinking from that scenario for me is that. You know, politically um, and economically, if you want to make—if you really do want to make a mountain of money out of people, then bloody well look after them.
1: Yes, that's true. You can't argue with that. I don't think you can. Anyway, that's the third part of my interview with Tim Sterling. Um, I have got one little bit more to of that to go, but I think we're going to have some more music. It's another John Peel session. Um, well, it's the same one. It's 1987, and this is Bugger Dang Thing. He says, I hope I said that right. Anyway, it does rock, even though Tim said he didn't particularly like the rest of the um, he only liked the uh, track called Family Fantastic and didn't think much of the others. But I thought they were okay. So there you go. But what do I know? More excited sounds from the janitors, and that was Boogie Tan Thing from a John Peel session from 1987. Anyway, this is the last part of my interview with Tim, so do make notes. I will um, possibly test you at the end of the show. But anyway, um, I, I sort of had a bit of a chat there between the last comment or the last bit he said and asked if he ever got a royalty check for all the music that he did with the band. And this is his answer. Can you guess what he said? Bet you can. No.
2: Uh, the last one I had and unfortunately I've lost it, it was for pound seventy-seven for some airplay in Venezuela, believe it or not. But that was about 15, 20 years ago. Yes.
3: Um,
2: we got some royalty checks. You always get paid for doing John Peel sessions, which is good. Um, so you get, uh, you get the fee and then the repeat play fee, because they always repeat, and then you get the PRS payment. But the other royalties, no. No. Not a penny, actually.
1: And even on Abstract as well, with the Death Head?
2: Even on Abstract. So what happened with that album was uh, Edward Christie, who ran the label, uh, he did a deal. We met an American guy, so he'd done a licensing deal with this label. I don't even know what they were called. And what we got out of the album was the recording. I mean, it was paid for and the production of the album, but we, uh, money, fees, wages, no, nothing.
1: Yes, God, it's a murky, it is a very murky world, isn't it really?
2: It was, I I guess it still is, but uh, yes, it's a murky world. And then, you know, going back to the point of um, you need the protection of a manager, you really do. I mean, i have i've watched recently the there's a new coldplay documentary on um amazon which i watched i only watched it because of hoppy so hoppy's been chris martin's tech for the last 20 years it's been amazing for him um and i haven't seen much of him i saw him at um mutual friends funeral actually unfortunately earlier this year um but you know they have managed to They had a guy called Phil who was like the fifth member of the band. He was just like a mate um, who agreed to help them out um, with the business side of things. And he's still doing that. He had a break and they got a proper, like, massive American management uh, team, uh, I don't know, two albums ago. And Phil had gone to have a break in Australia, but now he's back. And he has done all of that filtering out for them. You know, they're kind of interfacing with the rest of the world and, and making sure that they're just able to do what they do best, which is just make music. It doesn't matter what you think about Coldplay. Personally, I yeah, I mean,
3: they're,
2: I, I do think they're a great band, but is, is it my cup of tea? Not necessarily, not all of
1: it. You no. know, I suppose, I mean, I suppose I actually haven't done all these interviews. I, I sort of have an amazing respect now for people like... Du, 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 you too and, and the, the fact yeah. that they managed to say navigate all that and yes, whatever you know you think of the, the characters and the music, it's a bit like, but you survived and you've, and you you know, a bit like one of those bands who just said, no, we're not going to get done over and end up sort of feeling irritated. You'll be irritated by us more than the other way around, which is good, yeah. you know, I think, well, that's good. But then you went on to play with My Bloody Valentine and The Meatons, didn't you?
2: Uh, yeah, except that Wikipedia entry is completely incorrect.
1: Oh. The My Blood of Valentine
2: one. <laughs> I would say, oh, damn, really? Can I? Would I have? Please. I did have. I, okay, so a little bit of information about them. So, my lovely wife, Natalie, is was best friends with Belinda for a long time. And um, her Belinda's son, Toby, um, is the same age as Merrick, my stepson. And we looked after Toby a lot when they got signed and they were touring all the time. Um, the only sort of... I was Kevin's roadie for a few gigs in Ireland. I had that experience. But no, I didn't play in the band, and I'm not sure... I mean, Wikipedia is a bit of a weird thing, isn't it? People just put entries on, um, and I don't know where that came from. The Mekons, yes, so I was the Mekons drummer for between 1993 and 96. Yes. which was good uh i went to america with them on a long tour and then went around europe with them once i didn't do any recording with them um but it was a bit weird i'll be honest um david you know so john is obviously one of the mecons and um i did audition with them but I wonder, looking back on it, if John gave me the the position because of some kind of guilt about the publishing and and intape and all of that, and of course i never I never asked him, and I was quite happy and excited to do that touring with them at the time yes but uh yeah, I don't know the The mecons are a funny lot they've they've kind of made a career out of this sort of non-music if you know what i mean i mean they have been they have been really good musically and i think the tour that i did with them the album was i heart me Cons, which is a pretty good album i think songs wise and they produce a hell of a lot of stuff over the years but i don't know if i really is that really my cup of tea no actually not now um, I enjoyed playing drums for them, and it was uh, it was very good for me. The best thing about it, I think, was playing with Sarah, the bass player, who had been the bass player in the bomb party. And I still know Sarah, actually. She lives in Brixton. And um, so I learned a lot about playing drums properly, in inverted commas, with the bass player.
3: Yes. When
2: I played in the Janitors, a lot of the drum patterns were driven by Hoppy and the guitar. And... Um, and that was interesting, and maybe that's why um, we had this kind of unique sound. I would play more off Hoppy than I would off the bass player.
1: yeah um, well a talking. About, actually, time. I just suddenly realised I've done quite a lot of interviews with ba- uh, drummers now. So, brain, so <laughs> I'm not great am sorry. So, no, no. I just, <laughs> no, no. I just realised because you were talking about kind of madness and things. So I did an interview with Drumbo, who was a Captain Beefheart's drummer. You know, when oh, they did Trackmaster yeah. Replica, and and it was kind of interesting what he said at the end that he. You know, because I actually interviewed him twice because they came to the art centre, you know, as the magic band quite recently, really, to yeah. him, you know, and he said he just kind of wished he'd never met the captain because because it kind of damaged him so badly. It was just like a damage... You know, because he did trap Mask Replica as a young man. And, you know, it was just like... He just wished he had sort of met, you know, Crosby... I remember him saying something like, I wish I met Crosby, Stills and Nash, because I I would have made a lot of money and wouldn't have been so damaged. Beefheart
2: was a very very unpleasant man to work with, I I gather, from stuff that I've read. And just an interesting side note for you, now you've mentioned Beefheart. When I was at Sunderland Polytechnic... um, The guy who became my best friend on the art course who was doing photography was a mature student called Charlie Biggs, who was from South Shields. So he helped Branson set up uh, Virgin Records, and uh, they opened the record shop on Oxford Street, which was the beginning of the label. And I used to go and stay in Charlie's flat at the weekends in South Shields, and he walked in his flat door, and he had a big photograph as you walked in of him with his arm around Beefheart, with Beefheart holding the first Virgin album that was released. And Charlie signed him to Virgin. He Mm -hmm. was head of A&R. So that was a funny...
1: Think,
3: coincidence
1: But I quite Bizarrely I think That's the album That you're talking about Which I can't remember But I think the stuff They did on Virgin Everybody hated Because it wasn't Yeah It wasn't But it was a bit yeah. Commercial It wasn't yeah. it, was, it wasn't awkward And difficult But yes So did you then As the As we got out Of the Into the Actually into the 90s Did you then Sort of hang up I don't know if you do That sort of thing Put Hang up your sticks Or just say <laughs> that, That's the end of, of your drumming life
2: Uh Oh, God. So I I had a good think about what we've been talking about. But after the Janitors, um, what did I do? Did I carry on playing? I mean, I did the Mekons. OK, so that's what happened. Yeah, the Mekons was up till 96. In 95, I got a job in a big studio in um, Clerkenwell called Fortress Studios, which was a very interesting building, um, it was used by a lot of bands, uh, signed and unsigned bands. Primal Scream had their own studio and lock-up there. Um, the Beta Band wrote all their early stuff there. Coldplay were there just right at the beginning, just before Yellow came out. They were rehearsing there. Um, Elastica um, wrote... I think they recorded... I think they did record the first album there in a separate studio in the building. So I started working there, running rehearsals, and then I got a couple of my own rehearsal rooms around the corner, and I did that for five years. So I was not playing... I used to jam with people in the studio but, uh, and hire out my drum kit for recording, but I was not... That was the beginning of me not really playing anymore, um, if I'm honest.
1: So um, you, were, you were sort of part of that, um, the Britpop and sort of hipster world, I guess...
2: The Britpop thing I mean I was a spectator for that but yeah behind the scenes maybe a little bit of um help and assistance in the studio but not any making anything uh, happen in a dramatic way no I was more I was kind of becoming a, a fan and a spectator at that point I suppose
1: yes and did you um obviously as with age and we all suddenly have this experience you I noticed that um, Phil Story died a few years ago, yeah, was yeah. that was that kind of one of those kind of moments that sort of knocks you off your feet a bit?
2: Um, not so much for me. Phil was again. He came, I think, from Leicester. Are, are you still very crackly as well, David? A little bit, yeah. It's bloody annoying, isn't it? I'm really sorry. I mean, it's 2019 now, and I haven't even got a phone that works but it does make it sound a bit more authentic yes. right <laughs> um, no not so much phil but yes i mean i didn't even i didn't even know i found out months afterwards because hoppy has always well he's been on tour for 20 years basically with coldplay dentover i don't speak to him i found him on facebook about uh three years ago but otherwise i had not spoken to him for i don't know who knows 15 years and the same with jeff and pete went to new zealand so i didn't have any contact with him um the guy the death that really shocked us all was um chris ridge who died this year of a brain tumor so he when the band started gigging properly in sunderland uh, no, sorry. In when we'd moved down to Manchester, we'd met him, and he became our driver. And so that was his first kind of roading job. But he ended up working for well, he was Primal Scream's guitar tech, and he did Jamiroquai, and uh, you know all kinds of bands, and was constantly in work. And he died very quickly and very suddenly, unfortunately. Um, so that I really felt that and also our first driver actually I'd forgotten to mention this Larry he was driving us um, in Sunderland when we were in Sunderland he was a friend of uh, Dentover's and he'd had terrible drug problems over the years he was older than us and uh, eventually after the band had moved off uh, he disappeared but he ended up hanging himself rather sadly um, I don't know, I don't know what year that was because it's all a bit of a haze but yes. um, yeah, there's been a few deaths attached to us and um, yeah, always very, very sad, tragic
1: yes. you know I know. and that is basically the end of the interview sorry about the crackle at the end but um, I thought, um, I somehow felt it was good to um, get to the completion of the story of the janitors a massive thank you to Tim Sterling Forgive me the time for that interview. Um, much appreciated. I know he wasn't completely sure whether he wanted to or not, but then he said yes, and then he did it, and hopefully he doesn't regret it. now. Anyway, a big thank you for that, um, and thank you for listening. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter, just go to at C86show, and as I said, all the other shows have been uh, archived and podcast, and you can get them on Spotify, iTunes, um, Podbean, and Mix. Cloud. Anyway, this has been David Eastall. I'll leave you with another track from The Janitors. I do believe this is also from a John Peel session taken from that great year that was 1987. Um, I now have no idea what the song's called. Oh, I do. I think it's called Gostakali. Gostakali. Anyway, something like that. Anyway, it's late. I'm tired and we're going to bed. So um, have a great week. <laughs>